what happens after the pandemic. Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Steve Davies. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Steve Davies. Steve is the head of education at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Previously, he was program officer at the Institute for Humane Studies at George Mason University. He was a senior lecturer in the Department of History and Economic History at Manchester Metropolitan University, and has also been a visiting scholar at the Social Philosophy and Policy Center at Bowling Green State University in Ohio. A historian, he graduated from St. Andrews University in Scotland in 1976 and gained his PhD from the same institution in 1984. He has authored several books, including Empiricism in History, The Wealth Explosion, The Nature and Origins of Modernity, The Economics and Politics of Brexit, and was co-editor with Nigel Ashford of the Dictionary of Conservative and Libertarian Thought. He also recently did an online lecture for the ILS about the world after pandemic. Steve, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you. Glad to be with you. So in each episode, we ask a question and go wherever the answers take us. Our question today is, what happens after the pandemic? But before we get right to that... I'd like to get very much into the past. Lots of people seem to be focusing on the short term, the the here and now and even maybe a month or two after pandemic. But uh, you say what is worth doing is thinking about the likely longer term results. In one of the articles that I've read, you said that. And even before you get to that, you say history is, of course, the best guide. So let's start there. Why is history the best guide? Well, it's the best guide because this is not a completely unprecedented event, put it mildly. Pandemics are something that happen regularly in human history throughout the last thousand years. We've had about a dozen pandemics since 1800, roughly. Uh, A whole series of big cholera pandemics in the 19th century, uh, five or six big uh, influenza pandemics since the 1890s, a couple of others as well. And so this is a recurring kind of phenomenon. And you find that, as always with things like that, there are patterns that repeat themselves. And it will be, obviously, that doesn't mean necessarily that they're going to happen again. That's the fallacy of inductive reasoning. But it does mean that that's the way to bet. Uh, And that means that our past experience of pandemics gives us quite a lot of guidance as to what is likely to happen here, Uh, certainly what is going to happen if we don't do anything, uh, and even what would happen likely if we do try and do something. Off the top of your head, would you like to bring up uh, some pandemics and why they're of note in terms of maybe like our discussion here and and pandemics in general. I know in an online presentation I saw that you did um, on YouTube, and we'll put that in our episode notes so our uh, listeners can click on that. You you mentioned Spanish flu because a lot of people have been talking about that in the media. I'm not sure if you'd like to, like, of course, we don't need to read off the stats right off the top of our head, but just anything that might help our discussion and actually give us some context. To put the the current pandemic into context, um, it could be much, much worse Uh, We've had a few pandemics historically which have killed more than 25% of the affected population, Mm -hmm. like the big plague in the Roman Empire in the second century, the so-called Antonine Plague, or uh, the just plague of Justinian in the sixth century, and most classically, the Black Death, of course, which killed about half the population of Eurasia. So we're nowhere near that league. On the other hand, we have had a series of pandemics in the 20th century, which this is comparable to. You mentioned Spanish flu. Uh, It actually began in Kansas, but for various complicated reasons, we tend to call it Spanish flu, in 1918 to 1919. Now, that killed about 50 million people minimum worldwide. It may have killed as many as 100 million. We don't know the exact figure. Uh, So significantly worse 
worse in terms of its impact than COVID-19 is looking to be so far. But on the other hand, the pattern of that epidemic has marked similarities to the pattern of what we're going through now. Uh, begins in a particular place, spreads along a number of major travel routes. In the case of Spanish flu, um, one of the major transmission routes was American soldiers uh, going in the spring of 1918 from North America to Europe, packed together in troop ships, not surprisingly, perfect conditions for the spread of an epidemic illness. Uh, but then also it has the pattern of an initial wave in the spring of 1918, then a hiatus during the summer of 1918, and then a much more virulent and much larger second wave, which broke out right at the end of the war and lasted through into the spring of 1919. And that was the one that actually killed most of the people and did the most damage. Uh, and so what Spanish flu suggests to us is that that's the kind of pattern that is likely to happen unless we are successful in preventing that second wave from starting, which is a tall ask, I might say. We've also had pandemics in 1957-58, so-called Asian flu, 1968-69, Hong Kong flu, which I can remember quite clearly personally. And both of those were pretty bad, but not quite as bad as COVID so far. However, and this is one of the ways in which I think history can provide guidance through contrast, I think the world economy now is more susceptible to and more vulnerable to a major pandemic than it was, say, in 1970, just after the Hong Kong epidemic. I think, let's say we had a repeat, a rerun of an influenza pandemic like the one we got in 68-69. I think it would do a lot more damage and have a much bigger impact now than it did back then. Not so much in terms of deaths, in fact, actually it probably might kill fewer people, but in terms of the economic impact, because our economy is now much more interconnected uh, than it was back then, and therefore much more susceptible to global disruption. Uh, and also, it's changed in other ways. So tourism has become a far larger industry and sector than it was back in 1970. So disruption to world tourism is going to have a massive effect on the global economy in a way that it didn't in the 1960s. Uh, similarly, world travel, airline travel, has become a much, much bigger feature of the world now. And so huge disruption to that industry, again, it amounts up to a much bigger hit to total product than was the case back in the 60s. And also, you know, we have a world now with very large, complicated, long-distance supply chains. These are very fragile, very susceptible to disruption. And so our economy really is much more vulnerable to a major epidemic than was the case 50 or 60 years ago. Now, we've really forgotten about this because the last pandemic we had in 2009 to 10, swine flu, was extremely mild. Uh, there was a bit of alarm at the start, but it became very obvious very quickly that it was an extremely infectious but extremely mild illness, uh, not that much worse than regular seasonal flu, really. Uh, whereas COVID is about, from all the evidence, six to eight times more deadly than seasonal flu and much more severe even in the non-fatal cases. And so the impact is, is going to be much, much greater. And I think the fact that we got off so lightly with swine flu has lulled many people into a false sense of complacency, uh, which you know they should not have been feeling because the doctors and the epidemiologists have been warning for nearly two decades now that sooner or later, we would have a really big and serious pandemic. Uh, but I'm afraid to say that outside East Asia, most governments did not pay enough attention to this. And so we've been caught a bit on the hop.
So we covered a lot there, which is great. So let me drill down a little further into a few specific points. So you mentioned the second wave towards the beginning of your answer there. And of yeah. course, as we all know, there's been a lot of focus in the media and a lot of focus with, with the messaging and the, and, the, and the sloganeering by many organizations talking about flattening the curve and, and really getting this under control. But it seems yeah. that you're saying that history has indeed taught us that um, it's not about getting this thing under control once, but perhaps twice or even three times. Well, it's very, very difficult to do that. Um, let me explain um more generally, what's going on here. Sure. Um, an, an epidemic illness of any kind is an illness where, by definition, you have what's called a reproduction number, an R0, as it's called technically, which is higher than 1.0. That means that each new case gives rise to more than one new case. Now, if that is what you have, even if it's 1.1, say, uh, you're going to have exponential growth. Uh, because of the way the mathematics works. If, on the other hand, the reproduction number is less than 1.0, you do not have exponential growth. Now, with a normal epidemic, the outbreak of the illness is geographically contained. Even if it's quite a large epidemic, let's say the Great Plague of London in 1665, it's still confined to a distinct geographical area, uh, which in that case was basically London, Middlesex, and bits of Surrey and Kent and so on. Now, when that happens, the path of the epidemic follows, looks like an inverted V. You get a period of very rapid exponential growth, then it peaks, and then it gradually declines. And you can see that pattern happening so far in, in COVID-19. Now, typically with a small, ge with a geographically confined epidemic, that inverted V is all you get. After that, the epidemic is over, basically, fades away. Now, when you have a geographically dispersed epidemic, where you get lots and lots of simultaneous outbreaks of the illness over a very wide geographical area, and a pandemic is the kind of extreme case of that because the area is the entire planet, uh, then you don't get that pattern. What you get is a pattern that goes like this. You have a first phase in which the, the disease breaks out in its point of origin. What it then does is to spread, as I said a moment ago, along things like trade routes and travel routes. Uh, now, these can be trade routes, but they can be the routes that armies take. It can be the routes of pilgrimages. So in one of the major cholera pandemics in the 19th century, for example, the big problem was that it got loose in Mecca uh, during the Hajj. Uh, which was a disaster because it spread all these pilgrims returning, spread the cholera all over Africa, the Middle East, South Asia. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, the, the pandemic spreads along these trade routes. Now, what that means is it jumps over lots and lots of intermediate territory. And it tends to, what you tend to get in the first phase, therefore, is a lot of simultaneous outbreaks in urban hubs. You tend to get major outbreaks in large globally connected cities, places like New York, uh, London, Paris, Madrid, uh, Milan, uh, possibly could have happened in Toronto. Toronto would be a candidate for it, that kind of thing. So it tends to break out in those areas. Now, those epidemics in those individual hubs tend to follow the inverted V pattern. But that's not the end of the story. You then enter with a pandemic into the second phase, which is, which is what the epidemiologists call the smoldering phase. During this period, if you like, the initial fire has died down, but you've got lots of embers. What I mean is that you have a low 
but constant rate of infection, not high enough to lead to a big exponential growth surge. But what happens during that phase, if you're not very, very careful, is that the illness spreads geographically. It becomes more geographically widespread. It tends to backfill the spaces between the initial outbreaks. And gradually, little by little, unless you can control it, um, those infections, those local infections, will start to mount up and cluster again, and then this builds up into a larger second wave. And that second wave is usually much bigger than the first one because it's more geographically widespread. It therefore affects more people, uh, and it's much harder to control. You then get third and fourth waves, but they're usually much, much milder, at least with a viral disease, because viruses are under a natural selection pressure to mutate into a milder form, because a virus is a parasite, basically, and a parasite that kills its host is an inefficient parasite. Uh, for the virus's point of view, the ideal situation is to make the host, us, sick, but not sick enough to stop walking around and doing stuff right so the natural selection process with viruses quite rapidly over about a two-year period tends to drive them into a uh, much milder variant but so that for that reason the third and fourth waves if they do come are typically much much milder and less damaging it's the second one that you need to worry about uh, so what governments around the world are trying to do right now is to constrain people's interactions uh, and the amount of traveling they do so that that second phase uh, the smoldering phase is kept under control and gradually stamped out. Now, they may succeed in doing this, but it's a tall ask, I have to say. To completely stamp it out is a tall ask. Yeah, it is It is very challenging. And the problem is, of course, that then if we do get a second wave, which would come probably in the autumn, uh, the late autumn, early winter, although one has already started in Iran, I'm afraid to say, uh, if we do get a second wave in certain places, then what that would mean is you would have to reimpose strict controls. Uh, and the psychological and economic effect of that would be very, very severe. Uh, it is worth saying, though, that the places that get hit really badly in the first wave, like, say, New York City or Milan, Lombardy, they tend to get off lightly in the second wave. You can see that with the Spanish flu pandemic, because, of course, a lot of people in those badly hit regions have caught the illness the first time around, and that means they now have uh, immunity to it because they've developed antibodies against the virus. Uh, so you find a pattern very often where the second wave tends to hit areas that got off lightly in the first wave, whereas the areas that got hit badly in the first wave uh, managed to get away with it in the second. So to tie that point up, what does history uh, show us is the quote-unquote end of, of the pandemic? Is it finally there's a because, you know, everybody's talking about this, right? Is it finally that there's a vaccine? Is it that we just, quote unquote, yeah. learn to live with it and, and keep the numbers under control? What is the light at the end of the tunnel? Of, of course, the, there's a lot of variables, but... Well, the light at the end of the tunnel is one of two things. Uh, first of all, yes, you could it could come when you develop an effective vaccine. But, but that is actually much more difficult than many people realize. I mean, I think I myself did not quite realize until this pandemic broke just how difficult vaccine science is. And so we might get one by the end of this year, but I would bet against it. It would be a, an incredible achievement and an all-time record, actually, if we got a vaccine in less than 18 months. Now, the point about that is that um, by about 18 months to two years after the initial outbreak, the virus is probably going to reach um, a stable point at which it becomes just another seasonal uh, virus, uh, a bit like normal influenza. Mm -hmm. So the, the influenza virus that caused Spanish flu, for example, is still around, it's still out there. 
Um, uh, it's just that these days it's not very deadly because it's mutated into a very mild form and most of us now have some kind of immunity to it. So after about two years with a viral pandemic like this one, you're probably out of the woods anyway because most people are, will have developed an immunity and the virus will become a lot milder. It may then hang around forever and ever, but it will no longer be a serious public health threat. Bacterial pandemics, by the way, different story. Um, that's much worse, which is why we're very lucky that this is a viral pandemic and not a bacterial one. So it, it, that, that's the kind of end of the tunnel, so to speak. So we're looking basically at something that's going to last about 18 months to at most two years from start to finish. Uh, but the question, of course, is what kind of world will we be living in when, when all this is over? Uh, that, that's the big question, really. And let's move along to that, actually, here as we as we go through the conversation uh, to more of the pa- political and economic and, of course, psychological effects, which you've touched on, which we'll get to in, in a second. Uh, but before we get into some specifics, um, you noted something in, in one of your articles, or, or maybe it was the video, actually, that I watched that um, something key to understand is that pandemics don't tend to introduce novel political or proposed social changes, but tend to accelerate or reemphasize them. At least that's what the history shows us, right? Absolutely. Um, when you look at the past, it's very easy to sort of think, oh my God, after the Black Death, everything was changed. Nothing was the same as it had been before. And to think that when you have a major event, like a global epidemic, something that kills a huge number of people or causes huge disruption like COVID-19 is doing, that it's going to change everything. But actually, when you look more closely at the big historical episodes, what you find is that what the pandemic does is to speed up or dramatically magnify trends and things that are already uh, underway. So, for example, one of the effects of the this pandemic is likely to be that quite a lot of major firms are going to go bankrupt and quite a lot of sectors are going to take a big hit. But I am prepared to bet you a seriously large amount of money that the companies that will go under or the sectors that will go under will be the ones that were already in trouble before the pandemic came. Uh, similarly, with ideas or with social and uh, cultural developments, you find that it's tendencies that were already there that become more marked. So if we look back at if you like the Black Death, which is the kind of ultimate example of this, uh, the feudal system uh, was already in really bad shape. Feudal agriculture in Northern Europe, Western Europe, was already in really bad condition before the Black Death arrived in the middle of the 14th century. Uh, and what the Black Death did, if you like, was to precipitate the collapse of a way of running agriculture that was already on its last legs, as was shown by the huge famines and major problems that you were getting in the 1320s. Uh, Similarly, some of the cultural effects that you can see uh, from both the Black Death or Spanish flu were, again, an intensification of trends that were already in place. So that's what you would likely see. So the question, obviously, is what are the things that it's going to give a push to? Uh, What kind of things is it going to speed up? And what kind of features of the world before COVID are going to become much more prominent uh, in the world we move into after the pandemic has finally passed. The writing you've done on this and some articles I've read online, again, you talked about political, psychological, economic effects, spe- speak, yeah. specifically speak when it comes to political effects. You note, of course, that the pandemics weaken the legitimacy of states and rulers and often coincide with popular unrest. Yeah. And one thing you know that was very interesting is that you think that um, coming out of this pandemic as well, there's going to be sort of multiple 
parties, I guess, ideologies where we're going to see a bit of a political realignment. For instance, you've talked about uh, center-right tendencies, people that, you know, traditionally you would say maybe are more market-friendly. You think that they might come out of this with a a little bit less of a market drive, if you will, thinking more of of nationalist economics and, and market direction will be directing a market, I should say, through the state will become a lot more appealing to this camp. That's one of the things you're thinking will happen after this. Absolutely. Yes. And in fact, um, couple of, uh, something I should say there is that one of the books uh, that I've recently published, very recently published, which you kindly mentioned in your intro, uh, the book about Brexit, is actually about realignment. It explains Brexit in terms of political realignment. So I've been arguing for oh, about a decade now that most developed democracies are going through a political realignment. And very quickly, like in one sentence, what that means is this. In most normal times... Um, politics always divides the population and the parties into two broad camps. And the reason why this is, the basis for that division, is that there's always just one or two issues that are particularly salient, that are relevant to and matter to a very large number of people. And so those divisions are the aligning divisions. You decide which camp you're in based on your position on that aligning issue. Now, for oh, almost since the 1920s, really, the bigger lining issue uh, in most countries has been economics. It's been whether or not you favour broadly a free market economy or one in which the state plays a larger role. Obviously, there are other issues that combine with that. Uh, so in Canada, for a long time, it was Quebec. You've had other kind of issues, federalism. You've had other kind of issues over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, what I argue, what I, what I believe, is that what we've already seen in the run-up to the epidemic in many countries is a realignment away from economics as the primary divide in politics. And instead, what we're seeing is the appearance of questions of identity uh, as the big dividing issue. And above all, a split or increasing division between globalism uh, and nationalism. Now, what this has led to is the emergence of a new kind of politics, which is often miscalled populist. And that's the one you alluded to there. It's a kind of politics that combines um, state direction of the economy com- combined with private ownership uh, with nationalism, anti-globalism, hostility to globalization, very strong hostility to things like immigration, uh, and a strong reassertion of a kind of traditional idea of national identity. This is the politics of Donald Trump. It's the politics of uh, Marine Le Pen. It's the politics of the AFD, uh, the Sweden Democrats, a whole bunch of political parties, Narendra Modi, uh, and people of that sort. And this kind of politics, I think, is the the realignment of the right, the movement of the right of politics away from where it's been for the last 30, 40 years, which is a combination of social conservatism with market liberalism. I think that is going to accelerate. I think parties like, for example, the Canadian Conservative Party, uh, or at least large parts of it anyway, are likely to move in the direction I've just described. That is to say, much less keen on globalization, much more keen on asserting traditional national identity or ethnic identity even, but also moving towards an economic position, which is still non-socialist, but which favors a much more active role in the economy for government. Plus also things like more protectionism, shortening global supply chains, hostility to economic integration across borders and the like. 
Um, obviously, you know, in Canada, this is like a, going to take a complicated form because of the constant issue you have within Canada being a binational state. So the question is, which national identity are you going to uh, try and reassert? Um, and so I think that that's what's going on. I think, yes, this is going to get a big acceleration. One of the things that's very striking is that uh, in both Britain and the United States, I don't know about other countries, divisions of opinion or reaction to the pandemic and the lockdowns tend to map fairly close to on, on two divisions about, say, Brexit or your support or hostility to Donald Trump. Uh, and interestingly, in the British context, for example, uh, people who are strongly pro-Remain, uh, who are at the cosmopolitan end of the new division, they tend to also be very alarmed by the pandemic, very supportive of the lockdown, very keen on uh, keeping the controls in place. Whereas people who are strongly uh, pro-Brexit on the nationalist end of this new divide, they also tend to be more sceptical about the threat of the pandemic, uh, less supportive of the lockdown, more keen that it should be lifted as soon as possible. And you can see the same kind of division uh, in the United States. And so for that reason, I think the pandemic and the reaction to it is going to intensify this new division in society. Uh, and it's going to work out in all kinds of interesting and quite unusual ways, I think. And, and as you said, it's not necessarily in intensifying certain uh, sentiments on, on, on an issue by issue basis. You think that this is going to result in much more tribalization, if you will, and as you said, identity politics. Yeah, I do think so, yes. I mean, I think that this is something I deeply regret, by the way, because this kind of politics I described, uh, nationalist, uh, but also collectivist, as far as I'm concerned, the worst possible kind of politics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, th these people, they are wrong about everything. <laughs> I mean, at least if, if somebody disagreed with me on economics, I probably would agree with, um, uh, you know, conventional somebody to say the Canadian Liberal Party or the US Democratic Party. Right. I might disagree with them about economics, but I would agree with them on social issues and civil liberties and things of that sort. Uh, whereas, whereas, again, with someone like, you know, um, the, the Canadian Conservative Party since, you know, Stephen Harper took over or maybe before then, I would uh, agree with them on the economics broadly, but disagree with them on, you know, some of the other things, the social conservatism and moral conservatism. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, if you're a liberal like me, you're confronted with a kind of politics, a species of politics, which is wrong on both counts, uh, which you've, you know, which is highly rebarbative in other ways. So this is bad news for me. It means a, a drift in at least one pole of politics in a direction which is quite clearly and explicitly anti-liberal. And you can see that very strongly in Europe. Uh, people like Viktor Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary, who has taken advantage of this crisis, by the way, to make himself effectively a dictator, mm -hmm. uh, or the Kaczynski government, the PIS government in, in Poland. These are explicitly anti-liberal in a way that social democratic governments uh, or North American liberal governments are not. And that's, um, you know, very disturbing, really. But I'm afraid I do think that this is already well underway and it's going to get a big push from the kind of divisions that the an impact of the of the pandemic. And as you said, I think it's it's really important to reemphasize that when we're talking about these sort of re realignments and, and changes, especially in the, in the economic sphere, um, that we're not talking about, you know, um, although these things are important, that is to say, we're, we're not talking about a subsidy here, uh, you know, uh, a, a bit of cronyism there. We're talking about people having ideas about how, as you said, things like global supply chains should realign and how different 
you know, trading can work with different partners. And and if you mix some nationalist sentiment in there and, you know, people start talking about growing bananas in Canada, these are these are big changes, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's a whole the point is it's an actual shift in political philosophy. Mm-hmm. It's a shift away from uh, one where the default position if you're on the center right is to broadly favor markets to one where your default position is that you want an active government that will promote national economic success. So you you stop being a fan of Adam Smith and become a fan of Friedrich List, if uh, anybody knows what I'm talking about there. So uh, this is just generally generally bad news. In some ways, it's as far as North American right wing politics are concerned, particularly American. This is a reversion back to type uh, because the Republican Party in the United States, I think, is already clearly redefined itself as being the American Nationalist Party. And in right. doing so, I think it's gone back to its historic identity, uh, the kind of identity it had between the Civil War and the 1920s, really, uh, which is when it was precisely the party of protectionism, favoritism for big business, uh, you know, cozy relationships with large railroads and other major business firms, uh, and also a certain kind of American nationalism defined on a particular division of what American identity was, uh, Protestant, wasp all that kind of thing uh so uh, you know the republican party i think is in some ways like casting off the kind of uh economic liberalism it picked up with reagan or maybe even the 1940s and it, it's gone back to its historic time uh and that i think that's that kind of thing is something we're going to see in a lot of places right i think they are an excellent case study any feigning about you know uh, f- free markets and, and market liberalism has certainly just been even if it was on the margins before it's been chucked out the window now right absolutely yes uh, you know, uh, hurled with great force, you might say. Right. Uh, and I mean, it, it's um, it is worth saying, by the way, that politicians that their job is to win elections, basically. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. most politicians' view of ideology and principles is like the Groucho Marx one. Um, you know, when he's Rufus T. Firefly, gentlemen, these are my principles. If you don't like them, I've got others. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Perfect. Uh, it's the typical way of working, I'm afraid. Right. Yes. And on that note, I think it's an excellent space to take our break. So we're going to do that right now, everyone you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Steve Davies. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Danny Leroy, Darcy Garreau, and Elizabeth Aragona. Remember to like us on Facebook, Follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Steve Davies today. Steve, before the break and a good chunk of the first part of our conversation, we talked a lot about uh, economic changes, political realignment, uh, th- things that history has told us that, that pandemics bring forth, but also what we predict maybe the future will look a little bit like. L- let's shift gears. Be- I, well, I should say I want to park the economic effects and we'll come back to that because I do want to talk about that uh, in a little bit more detail later. However, let's park that for now and go to some psychological and cultural effects. In some of your articles, you've outlined these things. Um, of course, you can take whatever direction you want. But one thing I'd like to start off with is something that I definitely wrote down for my discussion notes today, because I did want to talk about it. The the upsurge of malar- m- millenarian religions. That's something that you said is just something history has shown us and something we might actually uh, come to expect over the coming months. So first of all, what are we talking about here and why should we expect an upsurge of that? Well, okay. Um Millenarianism is the belief in Christianity uh, that 
when the end of the world comes, uh, Jesus is going to return. He's going to have his second entrance. Uh, and he will then overthrow the earthly kingdoms and rule as an earthly king for a thousand years. Uh, at the end of the thousand years, you get the devil is let loose for a bit and there's the final battle and then the heavens and the earth are departed and rolled up like a scroll and all the rest of it. Uh, so millenarianism is the belief that the end of the world is at hand, uh, that somehow the world is going to undergo a sudden massive apocalyptic radical change any moment now. Uh, now, when you get a major pandemic, I mean, the Black Death being the quintessential example here, that's what you often get a lot of people thinking. Uh, and you can imagine why people did at the time. If you've seen like half the population around you die in a matter of two years, you probably are going to think this is the end of the world. Uh, it, would feel, it would feel like it, you know. Uh, and so what you get during major natural disasters like this is a lot of people buying into the idea that indeed this is the apocalypse. It's the end of everything. So I think a lot of survivors, uh, survivalists, that is, and preppies out there are going to be really excited at the moment because this is the thing they've been storing all that tin food for for all these years, I think, is what they're probably thinking. And so I think one of the things we will see in the aftermath of uh, the pandemic is a belief that maybe everything is going to collapse. A lot of people will buy into narratives that we're living in the kind of final days of industrial civilization, perhaps, or we're living in the final days of Western civilization, and that everything is going to basically uh, collapse, and we're going to see some kind of catastrophic and dramatic transformation. Uh, whether you think that will then lead into something better or something worse will depend on the individual you know, psychology, really, and beliefs. But I think we are going to see a lot of that. So uh, stand by for tons of, you know, even more uh, zombie novels and post-apocalypse fiction, uh, but also a lot of people uh, suddenly feeling that, you know, things are just very short and that everything is going to come down in a short time. And that will not wear off for quite a while. It will take quite a few years before people realise that, no, actually, uh, we're not going to see the end of everything. Uh, we're not living in the, the last days, basically. Uh, you will also see, or certainly in some parts of the world, a big revival in actual millenarian religion. Uh, you know, a lot of Christians, uh, a lot of Muslims are going to think that this is indeed the end times. This is, you know, one of the foretold plagues and disasters of the apocalypse. And so uh, no doubt we will see another big uptick in belief in precisely that kind of Christian millenarianism. And now that you're speaking of that, it does call to mind other other catastrophic events too. Even even pandemic, even even if we get off the subject of pandemics for a second, talk about more more concentrated disasters. Like for instance, I'm thinking of you know after the 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 nine eleven attacks in New York and things like that, and in Washington, uh, there was a lot of books that came out just directly a couple of years after that about you know these uh these apocalyptic societies, uh, you know where where yeah. you're going to have the 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 caliphate in the east and 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 the Americas in the west, and there's going to be this constant battle. So, so as you're speaking about that, it does it does remind me that yes, like yeah. anytime there's some sort of catastrophic event or anything like that, people will have their their new world order predictions, if you will, for lack of a better term. Precisely. I would say, by the way, putting my historian's hat on very firmly here, this is very much a uh, Christian stroke Muslim way of thinking. Um, mm. It reflects the way that the Christianity, in particular, but also Islam, have a particular vision of history in which history follows an arc. Uh, which culminates in the apocalypse, in, which means literally the unveiling. It's the point in the future at which God's great plan is unveiled and made obvious. That's not the way that classical pagans thought, and it's not the way, say, Hindus or uh, 
Chinese or Japanese think. It, it's a uh, it's very much part of the kind of mental furniture of people who live in uh, Christian or post-Christian uh, or Islamic societies. It comes from the religions of the book, basically, that way of thinking. Right, the idea that this will all lead, lead to something, that we're in sort of yeah, like the story arc. Uh, and- history is going in a particular direction, and what, what things like the pandemics do is show, or major disasters of any kind, actually, show is that we're getting to the denouement, you know, we're finally getting to the last act. Whereas if you if you come from, say, a Hindu, intellectual framework then history is just a matter of repeated cycles mm. so you don't have that that kind of vision of a particular arc or directional goal for history so you react to disasters in a different way uh, it's got a different kind of mental framework one of the things i would say by the way is that if you do think the world is going to come to an end um, this does lead to what i think are two of the most common uh, cultural and intellectual responses to pandemics uh, and that is either or both seriousness and living for the day. On the one hand, there's nothing like seeing lots of death and mayhem around you to give you a serious outlook on life. And so a lot of people uh, take the view that, my God, you know, I've been living a frivolous and uh, you know, short-sighted life. I need to get serious about things and really focus on what matters. That's a very common psychological reaction. The other kind of psychological reaction, which you often find human nature being what it is in the same people, is to focus very much on the here and now and to think about uh, pleasure and to think, well, if I could die at any minute, I might as well take my pleasure where I can and get as much of it as I can. Now, if you look at the Spanish flu, uh, you can see those two reactions very, very clearly. So what you get in the 1920s on both sides of the Atlantic is both of those responses. On the one hand, you get a lot of intellectuals who start to think really, really quite seriously about what the future of industrial civilization is, what science is going to do, where it's going, maybe what the problems of the modern world are and how to deal with them. But at the same time, you get the uh, culture of the Roaring Twenties. You get Weimar Berlin, the kind of amazing culture of hedonism and sexual license that you find in in Weimar Berlin, uh, and in also in you know the culture of the flappers and uh, all the other things you get in the nineteen twenties. And, and it's, I think it's pretty clear that that's a response to the the impact of not just the Great War, but also uh, the the Great Flu pandemic that came immediately after it, which killed you know, well over twice as many people as the war had done. Mm-hmm. That's not again. And shifting gears a little bit on psychological and cultural effects, uh, speaking on the role of experts in society, I'll quote you from one of your articles here. You said, some people have their trust in experts restored or strengthened, but many lose what little faith they already had and turn to fringe ideas. We've, we've touched a bit on that before, but of course, this isn't, when we speak of fringe ideas, this isn't always about religious ideas specifically. Absolutely. And, and that's a very, you can see these clearly happening at the moment. Um, on the one hand, I think uh, some people will say, well, look, this is a case where we do need to follow the expert's advice. The experts have got it right. But on the other hand, uh, if the feeling goes gets ground, and it has done amongst many people, uh, that the experts have got it wrong, or even worse, that they don't know what they're talking about, uh, then, uh, you know, the opposite effect happens. Uh, people lose whatever faith they had in expertise in the fact that some people out there know more than them and are in a better position to make judgments about things. One of the problems here is that it's very hard for uh, the lame man or woman to distinguish between true experts and putative experts. And one of the big problems at the moment in the course of this pandemic is that we have, on the one hand, actual epidemiologists uh, who are 
typically arguing one kind of case. And on the other hand, we have people who are often described as epidemiologists, but they're actually typically statisticians or mathematicians who uh, are very often arguing a different case, uh, and a different interpretation of the data. Uh, but they're being presented as being of equal standing, when in fact they're not because a mathematician may be good at manipulating statistical you know, aggregates or understanding how statistical projections work, but that doesn't mean they understand the, med the medical dynamics of an epidemic, particularly an epidemic of this kind, mm -hmm. which as I said a while ago, is actually quite different from what 90% of epidemics like, uh, geographically defined ones. And so confronted with rival claims from different kinds of experts, it's quite difficult for ordinary people to work out which experts they should take seriously. And it's very easy given that to then just throw up your hands and say, well, you know, stuff the experts, they're all wrong. You know, Now that's a very dangerous kind of development. And again, it's one of those developments that's been growing for some time before this. What I hope is that actually the pandemic will ultimately make a lot of people realise, yes, you do need expertise uh, and you can't simply rely on gut instincts to navigate uh, or ideology to navigate difficult and complex situations. What I fear is that for many people at least, and I hope not the majority, uh, it's going to be instead a revulsion from the whole idea of expertise or uh, expert knowledge, which would be very bad. And I guess on, on the note of... Uh the everyday layperson that maybe hopefully after this people t realize a little bit more that sort sort of being a, a vessel that has like you know headlines coming at you and you kind of parse from there and scroll through your phone and maybe take the headlines at face value the i guess the idea should be that maybe a little bit more critical thinking is required because if you just yeah. rely on uh the the quote unquote new study reveals headlines every couple of weeks or or, or whatever um media bias of your choosing is that's not also going to help you navigate the world and all this information too there's just way too much out there yeah absolutely and also uh i with the passing of time i've become more and more convinced of the truth of Nassim Nicholas Taleb's uh, argument that uh, the more news bulletins and news programs you read and watch, the less informed you are. That hmm. uh, actually what we call news, the whole industry of news production, is actually part of the entertainment industry. Yes, uh, yes. And uh, you need to, as you say, apply critical thinking, critical reasoning uh, skills, and also things like elementary statistical skills to be able to actually make more sense of what is going on out there in the world and get your information from a quite different kind of source uh, to you know, the kind of constant flood of uh, very often highly misleading stuff that you get from the, the mainstream media. I think you'll agree with me that a good place for, for a lot of people to start is like really wrap your head around percentages because, you know, yes, one, one increasing to two is 100% increase. It sounds scary, but we need to all remember that. <laughs> yes, exactly. I, and and also what the what the nature of relative risk is. I mean, mm -hmm. the number of headlines I'm sure we've all seen which say things like, oh, eating something doubles your risk of some disease, cancer, say, well, okay, they read down. It says what it's done is increase it from one in a million to two in a million. Right. Uh, so uh, so understanding what the difference is between absolute probability or risk and relative probability or risk would be a huge breakthrough. I'm actually I'm actually glad you, you mentioned the risk thing. I, I don't even have a noted here, but it, but it's bringing up uh, what I remember from uh, the video online that you that you the presentation you did where you talked about I think it was like your second last or, or your last point. You reminded the audience, like, let's not succumb to, I think what you called like the bathtub fallacy. That's maybe right, maybe yes. you could bring, maybe you can go through that. Oh, the bathtub fallacy is the argument that, well, uh, your chance of being uh, 
breaking, suffering an injury like breaking your arm by slipping up in the bath is actually higher than your chance of being killed by a terrorist attack. Therefore, you should worry more about bathtubs and less about terrorist attacks. Uh, that is a, a total fallacy of mathematical reasoning because what it's doing is confusing two things. One is a event which has a fairly high probability of happening, but minor results, like one broken arm, versus an event which has a low probability of happening, but which has far-reaching and disastrous results. Uh, and you, you are quite right to be worried about the second. Even if the probability is low, because the consequences of its happening are so big, it's quite rational to be more concerned about that than it is to be concerned about the bathtub problem, the problem uh, which is quite likely to happen, but which doesn't have big bad results. Uh, so if you are convinced by the bathtub fallacy, then really you should never insure your house against burning down because <laughs> right. the chances of that happening are actually pretty low. So if you're going to work in the bathtub fallacy basis, then you shouldn't be doing that. Right. Uh, so that's a classic fallacy of mathematical reasoning. Right. So, so the people saying I, we shouldn't worry about getting affected or infected, we shouldn't worry about the pandemic because, you know, I might get hit. I might be more likely to get hit crossing the street uh, when a car when a car smacks into me. That not not good logic <laughs> for the record. No, absolutely not. That is seriously bad thinking. I, I said earlier and I, I teased it. I said, let, let's park economic effects for a little bit because I want to do a deeper dive. Let's let's shift over to that now. Um, so specifically when we talk about the welfare state. So what you're saying is historically uh, what times of crisis, especially pandemics, have shown is that a lot of strain is put on the welfare state in many institutions of the state. I sort of was thinking um, of when a lot of people, when there's a financial crisis, there's sort of like a run on banks. So is it fair to say that, you know, now we're sort of experiencing like, like a run on welfare state when, when this sort of thing happens? Yes. Well, what, what governments have done around the world is to essentially deliberately shut down a large part of the supply side of their economy mm -hmm. in order to try and contain the spread of the of the virus. Now, um, what they are trying to do by various measures that they've taken is to preserve the supply side of the economy by doing things like giving cash handouts to households, by giving grants or incredibly low-cost loans to businesses, and also by, in, say, in the UK case, paying the 80% of the wages of people laid off by their employer. Now, those are not demand-boosting measures. This is not about boosting demand. Those measures are about maintaining the supply side of the economy, keeping it in existence until the pandemic is over. So that's what's actually going on right now. Uh, now, what that means is, though, that the welfare system comes under enormous stress because uh, obviously a lot of people are going to take a big hit to their income despite the best efforts of the government. The longer this goes on, the bigger that is. And so the more and more people will be driven back onto various kind of welfare benefits. Now, what I think is going to happen in the Anglo-Saxon countries in particular is that the welfare system will be found severely wanting. Uh, there was already pressure building up against it in the UK and other places, Australia, for example. But I think this is going to become much, much more marked. And I think that in particular, the system of means-tested benefits, which is the dominant form of welfare transfer in the Anglo-Saxon countries, is going to be just simply found to be unworkable. Uh, and also the experience of seeing the government basically giving people a large part of their income for a significant amount of time is going to lead to a big argument about what we should do with the welfare system going forward. And in that argument, the case for moving to a universal basic income uh, is going to be made very forcefully and it will be taken much more seriously than it would have been, let's say, 
a year ago. And and uh, you do have a paper out on this. It's called Redefining the State of Welfare. Again, we'll put that in our episode notes for everybody to, to go check out. Um, and before And you outline actually some key questions in there that we need to ask ourselves. Before we get to that, actually... Um, I also want to touch on another thing you did in the paper, which is you outlined some different forms a UBI could take, right? People ultimately yeah. the idea is that the state can guarantee a certain level of income, but that isn't always, for instance, just a check in your pocket. So, what are some different forms this could take? Okay, well, the the way to understand this is that a UBI is actually a specific form of a wider category. The wider category is guaranteed minimum income schemes. Now, you can do that in a number of ways. Uh, you can do it, for example, through a negative income tax, as Milton Friedman advocated. Mm-hmm. Uh, a UBI is a particular kind of guaranteed minimum income scheme. What makes it a UBI is, first of all, that it's universal. You get a cash payment which is given to everybody. And secondly, um, it is uh, unconditional. So it's not means tested or uh, linked to you know whatever your income or savings are at the time. So that's what a UBI is. Now, a UBI can take a number of levels, if you will. What a lot of the proposals doing the rounds in various places, including Canada, but also the UK and elsewhere do, is to suggest that you get a one-off payment, which is a supplement to the existing welfare system. I'm strongly opposed to that because I think this would be very expensive and it would still leave all the problems that the current system has in place. It would So you'd end up with the worst of both worlds. You'd have a lot of extra money, a lot of extra taxes, but not much gain in terms of sorting out the problems that the welfare system has. Uh, now, a much more radical kind of UBI would be one which actually replaced all existing benefits. So instead of having old age pensions, unemployment benefits, sickness benefit, and a whole range of stuff like that, uh, you would simply have one single benefit, which everybody would get, which would replace all of those benefits. Now, that would be very expensive, but it would also uh, bring big gains because it would radically simplify the welfare system. And it would mean also uh, that you increase people's personal autonomy because they would no longer be dependent upon uh, the grace and favour of a bureaucracy, a very often dysfunctional bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, the incentive for them to go and find work in addition to the basic income they were getting would be much, much higher. The problem and the challenge with it, and this is where I think the big argument is going to come, is that what it will is that first of all, what level do you set it at? If you set it at a level that is too low for people to live on, then there's still going to be lots of poor people, which defeats the object. Right. If on the other hand you set it at a level level that people can live on, even if only very frugally, a subsistence income, the danger is that what you do is to separate income from productive work. And most people will still work but there's going to be a significant minority maybe who will not, and they will be deeply resented by the people who are still working. So Mm -hmm. you're going to cause severe social tensions. And so I think there does need to be a, a bigger argument about what the relationship is between any kind of system like that and the world of work. Uh, And it's not clear to me what the best way forward with this is because um, it relates to problems with the way the labour market has been developing over the last 10 to 15 years in most countries, but particularly, again, in the Anglo-Saxon countries, in the direction of more casual employment, less secure income, not necessarily lower income, but less predictable and less secure income. Uh, how might you you know, design a system to deal with that? So I, what I'm saying really is that I think 
the COVID pandemic is going to lead to a major conversation about welfare reform in which ideas around a UBI are going to play a major part. But it isn't going to be a straightforward matter of people saying, well, gosh, I think this shows us really that this is the way to go, uh, because it's not straightforward as that. You have There's a whole lot of things you need to work out before you can actually arrive at any consensus. And I think we're a long way away from that. I think what we do need is, is a serious conversation involving pretty much everybody from across the ideological spectrum. Uh, because one of the interesting things about this is the way uh, support and hostility to an, a UBI both cut across the conventional left versus right division. Uh, there are supporters and critics of the idea on both the free market side and the more social democratic side. Uh, and so I think you could have a very interesting kind of four-way conversation where we might work out some better way forward of dealing with the problems that we undoubtedly have, and which, as I said, I think the, the pandemic has clearly uh, highlighted. Right. And I think one can think of many a situation in their head where a, a lot of the, as you said, from different angles of the ideological spectrum, people come perhaps to the same conclusion, but for different reasoning. And that's not necessarily yeah, a bad exactly, thing yeah. either. Yes, exactly. I mean, one of the, one of the things about a UBI is that um, a lot of people on the left are hostile to it, firstly, because it, it does tend to separate income from work. And trades unions in particular uh, see work as a central part of you know, a good society. They are not keen on that idea. Uh, also, it's quite clearly individualist. The reason why a lot of libertarians favour uh, a UBI is because it's seen as a measure that will enhance personal autonomy and it will leave people as individuals because it's given to individuals free to do their own thing. And a lot of people on both the conservative and uh, social democratic side don't like that because they don't like the emphasis on individualism. They think that that's mistaken. So yes, it, it's a very it's an interesting question, and I think we are going to have a big, interesting conversation about this going forward. Right, and as I mentioned, that is one of the questions you, you touched on in, in your paper. So another question you also brought up was how we understand the household and its place in society. Yeah, that was precisely. very interesting as well. Yes, indeed. It's worth saying, by the way, that the experience of lockdown, I think, is going to make a lot of people realise just how. Uh, stressful it is having both adults in the house working at the same time right uh, and they well think going forward is there any possible way that you know we can uh, live without that uh, because life just is a lot easier especially if you have young children it's a bit different if it's just two adults uh, but if you have young children it's it's highly stressful having both adults at work at the same time there might be something to be said for the fact that that's not necessarily a good thing as you said if uh it, it seems that a lot of household responsibilities and services are pretty much outsourced. Um, you're yeah. earning, earning lots of income to spend it so someone could uh, d deliver your food, maybe even shop for you now and then bring it to your house. And then you spend money to, for, on childcare, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. These things pile up, right? Absolutely. I mean, to give you one example, um, the I was amazed to discover that more than half of the meals Americans ate in the last 10 years were eaten outside the home. Americans eat more, just around 50% or slightly over 50% of all their meals in bars, restaurants, fast food places and so on, rather than in the home. Now, um, two things about that. One is, one of the things that the sociologists are very, very clear about from their research is that eating together is one of the most definite things you can do to create family solidarity, mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. you know, strengthen family links. Right. But also, this has left the American food system in an almost uniquely vulnerable place compared to other countries, because what it means is that the entire food production and processing system is set up to provide almost half of its output uh, to restaurants and other places like that rather than grocery stores. 
now, what that means is you've got the ridiculous situation of shortages of certain food products in grocery stores, but huge amounts of milk, eggs, butter being thrown away or not usable because the plants that process them are set up to do it in catering size quantities for restaurants and fast food outlets. Uh, and it's extremely expensive to retool. Obviously, they don't want to retool if everything's going to be going back to pre-COVID normal in a few months. So uh, that that's made the American food supply system fantastically vulnerable and brittle uh, in a way that I think is not true for many other countries, because I think that level of eating out um, is, is must be pretty close to being the world record, I'd have thought, uh, even though eating out from home has been rising in countries around the world. And our time is winding down a little bit here, so I do want to move us along to what pretty much is my, my second last point, and it is one of the questions that you highlighted again in your briefing paper, Redefining the State of Welfare. Um, so let, let, let's end on that for this section of the conversation. You also said that we need to talk, have a, have a broader discussion on, on the role in a crisis of civil society and, and local volunteerism, yeah. basically, and, and what, what this tells us. I think a lot of people have res- rediscovered the value of that during this crisis, but uh, hopefully it's not a flash in the pan, right? Hopefully this creates a bigger discussion. Yes, indeed. I mean, one of the things which has uh, not been reported much because it's actually hard to find out about uh, here in the UK is the role played by neighbourhoods, civil society, voluntary association, the free interaction of individuals at the grassroots of society, you will, in dealing with the coronavirus epidemic and its effects. So, Uh, On the one hand, there's all the focus on top-down action by governments, and often very highly centralised action by governments, uniform policies for the whole of England, for example. Uh, But on the other hand, there's people in their locality, their neighbourhood, getting together uh, and setting up, you know, acting in a voluntary cooperative basis to deal with the kind of problems that the pandemic has created and brought about. And I think, as you say, that a lot of people have rediscovered, if you like, the efficacy and the effectiveness Uh, of that kind of spontaneous local action. And hopefully this will lead to a great appreciation, I think, of how that kind of decentralized civil society response to social problems uh, is often more effective because it makes use of local knowledge, dispersed and tacit knowledge, than the kind of centralized top-down controls that you get from governments or indeed from large private firms. Uh, And there are a few people uh, who are doing their best to kind of draw attention to this. So there's a journalist called John Harris, for example, in the UK, writes for the Guardian newspaper, an outstanding journalist, I have to say. And he's been doing a series of reports during the course of the pandemic about what is going on in various places. But we need more of this. But also, I think going forward, uh, as we move into the world beyond the pandemic, I think what people everywhere should be thinking about is how to revive and strengthen this kind of uh, civil society response to give it perhaps a bit more permanent structure and form and shape uh, and to try and find out how we can expand the space for that kind of voluntarist bottom-up response to social problems uh, and prevent it from being crowded out by the activities of governments and states whether national or provincial. Right. And a form of pluralism isn't sustainable unless we actually take uh, being part of different groups seriously, of course. Right. This can't just be, you know, you you see someone that helps you out or you help someone out, you know, and and that's that. We have to take it seriously that we can, you know, do other things in our economies and societies that beyond just sort of the the strictly rationalized with with the state activities. Right. I think I think the appeal of of being part of additional groups is is growing. I hope maybe I'm an optimist, but absolutely. And also it's worth saying that although uh, this may often involve money, this kind of civil society sector is 
neither government nor commercial profit-making market activity. It's something else, mm-hmm. hence this term, the third sector, that's often used to describe it. And uh, it comes in various forms. So sometimes it's a matter of people combining together because they have some feature in common. Maybe they belong to the same church, they have the same religious faith, they have the same ethnicity or language maybe. But on the other hand, it's often done simply by proximity. Um, right. It's just a matter of the fact you live in the same neighborhood, you live on the same street or in the same apartment. Uh, those are the two kinds of uh, social capital, as it's called, uh, bonding capital and bridging capital. And both of these are going to develop uh, in the context of this. One of the things that's happened with lockdown is I think that a lot of people have met their neighbours for the first time in quite a long while, or certainly more than they have for quite a long time. Uh, and that kind of thing can produce uh, much more uh, social capital in the jargon of the economists and sociologists. Uh, in other words, meaningful connections between people living in the same kind of immediate locality uh, and that can only be a good thing, I think. And our time is pretty much wound down here. So I have one final question before the formal wrap up. And that's pretty much, I want to tie up our, the main thrust of our conversation here by asking. So in a practical sense, I want to know what your personal feelings are on what is being learned from this. And I want to distinguish that from from what we should learn and, and what the way the world might ought, ought to look like after pandemic, because we focus, we've touched a lot on that in this conversation. But as you see politicians speak and, and public intellectuals speak, do, do you feel like they are learning the right lessons uh, in many cases? Of course, there's, again, so many variables, so many examples, but but what, what's your general feeling? You've thought a lot about this. And of course, you can observe a lot of public figures and politicians and what they're saying. Um, are, are you Are you optimistic, ultimately? Are they in fact learning the right things or are we in for a lot of a, a bumpy ride over the next couple of years too early to say really uh, there's, there's two things differently uh, at the moment i think the governments and the political figures who i actually have a lot of sympathy for right now i, I really am glad i'm not in their position um I, I think they're basically just like trying frantically to run still to stay in the spot like the red queen they're not they're too busy trying to manage things on a day-to-day basis to actually try and draw conclusions from it whether they will actually manage things successfully is uh, actually down to factors beyond the control of many national governments. It's to do with things like how the little bugger out there continues to spread. Uh, and there's things we can do to try and stop that, but ultimately, you know, we, we may not be able to do it. We just have to accept that, I think. It's also worth saying that we don't know whether, how the virus is mutating, because it will be mutating. They've mutated at a pretty rapid rate, and it could well be that it's mutating into a variant which is more infectious. That's very likely. The big question is whether it's also mutating initially into a version that is also more virulent, which is what happened with Spanish flu. The second wave was significantly more virulent than the first wave. On the other hand, we could be lucky and it could be like swine flu where the second wave was significantly less virulent, which is why it was such a mild epidemic in the end. So there's all that out there and that's completely unknown. It's you know beyond the control of any human being. Uh, so it, I suspect we are going to have a lot of bumps in the road going forward in the two years. Uh, but you know we'll have to wait and see, see how successful governments are in their attempts to control this. In terms of longer term lessons, um, I think one lesson everyone is going to learn is that you better be you need to be prepared for risks. I think we underestimated the risk of pandemics. I think the thinking generally was that this was a 100-year event 
which means that in any one year, there is a 1% chance that it will happen. I think it's pretty clear uh, that as the epidemiologists have been warning us for over a decade now, that it's more like a 20-year event. I think the risk of this happening is somewhere between 5 and 10% in any one year. Now, that's a much more significant risk. So I think that going forward, companies, governments, private individuals need to think, well, you know, we need to be prepared for this, particularly companies and governments. So I think that's the big lesson a lot of people will learn. Um, and I think the other lesson that uh, is probably going to be learned, at least I hope it will be learned, is that we need to reform agriculture because one of the main factors behind um, pandemics at the moment is the pressure that agriculture in particular is putting on wildlife habitats and also the way in which livestock farming in particular is promoting the development of novel pathogens. Uh, we've pretty much got a livestock farming system now in the rich countries, which is almost designed to produce novel pathogens and encourage them to jump from animals to humans. Uh, and that is where pandemics come from, uh, because a pandemic is almost always a new pathogen, a new virus or a new uh, bacterium. And those are produced either by jumping from an animal species to human beings, as has happened with COVID-19, or by being produced in domestic animals. And so I think that the lesson that should be learned from this is that uh, we should be, you know, really thinking seriously about how we, we do a lot of our farming, particularly livestock farming. So our time is definitely up here. It's time for a formal wrap up. Steve, we've talked about a lot. Uh, let's bring it full circle, put a finer point on our exploration of the question. At the end of each episode, I want to make sure the guest has the last word to sort of tie a neat bow on everything. So let me ask you, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on what life will look like after the pandemic? If you want to leave someone with one or two thoughts, ultimately, what is that? I would have two thoughts, really. The first is um, we've got a while to go yet, I think, before this is truly over. The second is that um, it's going to bring about big changes, but these changes are going to be really intensifications of things that are already going on. So this is not going to be the end of the world. It is not going to mark the end of civilization, but things are going to appear to be very different because changes that were happening slowly before the pandemic are going to happen much more rapidly during it and after it. Steve Davies, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.